and I think when we're talking about hope and resistance, I think Palestine and the Palestinian people are a perfect example of that ongoing resilience of hope. Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantel Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to be joined by Kieran KD, also known on Twitter as at Decolonial Commie. Big up, Kieran. Um, Kieran is a PhD researcher in sociology at Canterbury Christchurch, researching boycott, divestment in sanctions, also known as BDS. Um, but Kieran is also an activist and organiser for Palestine Action and Apartheid Off Campus. Kieran, throughout the past year, has been running a Black Marxism reading group. Kieran, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for um, having me. I've followed you guys for so long, and the forms of like democratising knowledge and the theory and praxis that you guys are kind of doing here is absolutely incredible and inspire me, and I know so many other people. Oh, Kieran. So thank, thank you both you. to you two and um, the producers and everything. Oh, that means so much coming from you because I first discovered you on Twitter. You also have a passion for democratising knowledge and information. And how I discovered you was your sort of long threads that you do of both analysis, but also captions from different decolonial scholars. And I was like, oh, my God, who is this person? It's amazing. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. And, yeah, it feels like very natural synergies. Mm-hmm. Here. OK, Kieran, what is BDS? So BDS is the... Boycott, divestment and sanctions is basically formed in 2005 from uh, a number of Palestinian civil society groups, trade unions, women's groups, modelled off of apartheid South Africa, um, or rather the social movements against apartheid South Africa falling, calling for democratisation and an end to apartheid, and basically applying it to the case of Israel today. Um, so it's basically asking trade unions, groups, uh, civil society groups, institutions to boycott and divest from Israel um, and its role in the ongoing uh, military occupation of Palestine um, and its ongoing apartheid system. In the context of, of a university, what would that mean? What, what would BDS mean for a university? So the funding they receive or the support that they give to their students? In that, is that the concept we're talking about? Yeah, so there's a few things. So um, I organise with Apartheid of Campus, which is a student network um, focused specifically kind of on this, not only on education in Palestine, but materially campaigning to force universities to divest. Um, so our universities currently throughout Britain hold or invest in around 420 million in companies that are involved in the occupations. This is from G4S, HP, to a lot of arms companies such as Lockheed Martin, Elbit Systems, BE Systems and things. Um, And essentially, the idea is to force universities to divest from those companies until they pull out of the um, occupation and pull out from uh, their role in 
the apartheid system, but it's also a much more kind of direct sense as well. So a lot of these companies, like arms companies and things like that, will have like careers fairs. So it's stop inviting things like Lockheed Martin to like careers fairs or things like HSBC because HSBC still invests a lot in um, Israeli money com- laundering. Yeah, money laundering. Money laundering. <laughs> you know, that's on the global sorry, corruption. That's on Netflix. That's on Netflix. <laughs> I'm not getting in trouble for that. Sorry, go on, Kieran. carry on. Kieran. It's on Netflix. Well, yeah, well, but exactly right. So we've got things like Barclays banks. We've got things like HSBC that are not. Not only the centres of kind of like capital and corruption, but they also fund apartheid and settler colonialism in Palestine, um, ongoing military occupation. Um, but it's also in the sense that so there's another campaign which we have, which is against um, the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. So the Hebrew University of Jeru- Jerusalem basically has part. Not only does its um, intellectual and kind of academic role is played in supporting the military occupation and a lot of it's kind of academics go or like lawyers go into basically part of that apparatus of the military occupation but part of its student village is built on illegally occupied territory since 1967 um, and there are a number of British uni- universities such as Oxford University which have a student exchange program where British students go and stay on illegally occupied territory which essentially violates the fourth Geneva Convention and international law um, so we are basically trying to not only get universities to uh, divest from companies that are materially complicit um, in the ongoing ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people and the apartheid system, but also the ending of the uh, student exchange programs that are directly complicit in legitimising this overall violation of not only human rights, but also international law. That's a lot. I think, yeah. I think lot this of, um, might be the earliest surviving society mic drop I'm lot. giving, but I'm giving him a full surviving surviving society mic drop. We're not even ten minutes in. Give me some vouchers, man. Give me some vouchers. Give me some vouchers for the man. Give me some vouchers and a surviving society mic drop for you, Kieran. Now, Kieran, that's it off the back of what you just said. So I'm just thinking, if you get these companies to divest, so well, what are the real world implications for students if you're going to go there? Because the logic would be if I if you take away something, someone's going to lose something. In someone's losing something somewhere. So, mm. are the students losing out, or do you, or do you, by divesting, or yeah, is it damaging students? That's what I'm trying mm. to say. So, I think there's uh, there's there's two arguments that can be taken here, and one is essentially the moral argument that students here shouldn't be profiting off of an apartheid system, shouldn't be profiting from colonialism and imperialism in the global south and the mm-hmm. exploitation of people throughout the world. Um, and this is why it's part of a more global anti-racist and anti-imperialist argument. But also, on the other hand, it's the fact that, uh, as my work is attempting to show, that BDS has a lot of radicalism for anti-capitalist kind of imaginations as well, right? That the fact that we don't need to have our universities complicit in military crimes, in war crimes. We don't need our universities to be complicit in fossil fuel companies in order to basically have an education system which can function for all. I mean, we know that our education system doesn't function for all and never has, right? So that even continues to strengthen that argument that you don't need to invest in military occupation and apartheid. Um, It's kind of judicial and scientific technologies. You don't need to invest in fossil fuel companies like Shell and BP um, in order to have an education system which all people can thriving because it continues to be an education system which is unequal even despite you know profiting from those things so this is why i think bds can work 
part of our broader anti-capitalist but also abolitionist ideals about what education should be and what it can look like because it forces universities to actually have some self-reflexivity upon its own material investments. And this is why also I think one of the arguments that a lot of people in a part of campus make or kind of the slogans is um, decolonization is not a metaphor, which I imagine you guys have heard, right? It's not just about reading groups. It's not just about changing the curriculum, but it's about actually looking at those material complicities that universities are actually involved in, right? When I see a lot of the um, decolonizing plans at universities, I never see a self, you know, sometimes I see fossil fuels, but I never see a self-reflexivity with the fact that most of our universities are investing in war crimes in Palestine, they're investing in colonialism and military occupation or they're investing in arms companies that are used to bomb some of the poorest people in the world. And so if we're talking about decolonization and what that really means in a very material sense, um, then I think BDS is, is a starting point, is a premise where we can um, build interventions to advance that promise of decolonizing our universities and institutions. 100% agree with what you're saying, right? But I think that's the- why you're on the show, Kieran. We obviously 100% agree with you. But, but, but we, tra- we're trying to bring it, we're obviously trying to bring yeah. it in. Not, it's not contrarian. I'm, just, I'm not but trying just, to problematize it, right? Yeah, yeah. Really. Yeah, course, so, yeah. one, the kind of first is a moral argument, right? Mm. I'm probably, yes, the, one, the oldest in the room. So, I remember the kind of boycotts of Barclays and HSBC. And I th- now I think about how effective were they? Because people made a business decision, right? So they're not they don't really care about the moral. Are you thinking sorry, just to contextualize for the listeners, are you thinking about with apartheid South apartheid, Africa? Apartheid, yeah, sorry, apartheid. So you remember, so you're, we're going let's go back to the eighties now. Yeah. And I can kind of remember like people uh, boycotting Shell. Mm. Um The Oranges. Shell Jaffa. Uh, who else was there? Barclays definitely, uh and HSBC, Midland Bank at the time. And I'm trying, and I think about how effective were they. And people make the argument it's a business, mm. it's a business issue. I'm investing in these because the returns that they give, shareholder value trumps that. And so, is there a place for those kind of more arguments? Because equally, the people in on the investing board will say it's not my concern. My concern is my shareholders, the people I hear here, the people, the jobs here, are my concern. So whether I, isn't, I I'm invested in, in in an oppressive regime, that's their national business. That's their sovereign territory yeah. to do, do 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 what they want to do. So. How effective is that argument against a, an entrenched system that we have here, entrenched system of capitalism? Well, exactly, right? And this is one of the main points. And this is why a analytic such as racial capitalism is so effective here. And racial mm-hmm. capitalism, we know, came out from a lot of scholars looking at the case of South Africa itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so when we're talking about a moral argument, I think this is a moral argument that speaks more to the masses of people that fight against apartheid and wish to see a world without the forces of white supremacy and racial capitalism, right? But the fundamental logic of capital accumulation is that it's shareholder value, it's to profit from exploitation of labour, and South Africa was a perfect case in point, right? But Mm. also is Palestine, not only in terms of the accumulation of profits for these companies directly through the military occupation, but also in the terms of what Marx would call primitive accumulation. Um, And Cedric Robinson, as Chantel mentioned in terms of my reading group, in Black Marxism talks about the central role of primitive accumulation and its ongoing role to capital accumulation around the world, right? So when you think of that role and what's happening in Palestine, ongoing dispossessing people from their land, the usage of JCB bulldozers, Caterpillar bulldozers, that's, you know, British and American companies, to dispossess people from the land and essentially reform the land into new markets for capital accumulation, right? Why would anybody attempt to do that? And this is the point, central point about BDS, is that we cannot make these arguments purely from a legal perspective. This is what Nura Erekat also talks about, who's a Palestinian lawyer, and she has a great book called Justice for Some, where she says international law clearly isn't the only tool that we have to use, because clearly 
capitalist companies are going to violate international law if it works within their profit incentives. But this has to be a material force of the masses of people, just like with apartheid South Africa, to force these companies to do that. And then they're not going to do this on a purely moral argument, the companies. They need to be forced to do so. And so the argument behind BDS is, while a moral one, but it is also a broader material one against those forms of capital accumulation that depend upon forms of exploitation throughout the global south. Mm-hmm. And so we need to have more material campaigns and arguments in order to make this happen. So part of campus does material campaigns and protests and things, but this is also part of what's happening with um, Palestine Action. So they're doing direct action against um, Elbit Systems, which is um, Israel's largest private arms company. Um, There's a number of factories here where they basically develop the technologies um, and weaponry and in many cases drones that are then taken over and used on Palestinians. In fact, they are marketed as battle-tested it's battle tested on Palestinians and exported exported around the world, right? And they're using direct action because it's very clear that as a profit incentive, they're not going to stop that. Um, that many of the companies that are also complicit, them are not going to stop that and the government isn't going to either. So it needs to be material action in the myriad of ways that human creativity can develop in order to combat these systems. And BDS, I think, is both the kind of strategic and ideological movement that I think has the ability to make these radical movements kind of possible and these radical interventions possible. I like, I like Kieran. <laughs> Kieran's sick, bro. He's sick. He's so sick. He's so sick. Just to come back to Cedric Robinson and talking about racial capitalism, obviously we've spoken about racial capitalism a lot on the show. Cedric Robinson says that Racial capitalism is the process of deriving social and economic value from the racial identity of another person. He argues that all capitalism is structured by racialism and produces inequalities among groups. Thus, all capitalism should be recognised as racial capitalism. Yeah, and I think there's another great quote from um, early on in Black Marxism as well, where he says, the ability of... Western civilization through capitalism was thus not to homogenize, as in homogenize labor, homogenize, say, the working class together, but to differentiate, to um, produce dialectical, geographical, subcultural, and turn them into racial differences for the purposes of its exploitation and accumulation, right? Um, and I think this is a point which is a growing thing. This is what people like Robin D.G. Kelly and others, and why there's been um, a republishing of black Marxism because I think it is so central to not only the forms of black rebellion that we were seeing last year in terms of the United States, but also our new conceptions of capitalism, which I think complicate the more um, simplistic Marxist and Eurocentric kind of frameworks, which are deployed deployed to kind of understand capitalism. I was actually listening to um, your thing with Gaminda and John the other day and (coughs) saying about Marxists kind of um, coming in. And I think this is where... The, one of the main important interventions needs to come in right in talking about racial capitalism and its relevance to understanding of not only historical emergence of capitalism, but its ongoing relationships, right? And so bringing it back to Palestine, there's a lot of talks in terms of studying, looking at it through the lens of apartheid, looking at it through the lens of settler colonialism, but there's very rarely looks at it in terms of racial capitalism and its more global dimensions. And I think something like BDS as an, a kind of not only a strategy, but also a framework of analysis, right? Um, So there's a great um, paper by Linda Tabar and Chandi Desai called Decolonization is a Global Project from Palestine to the Americas. And they use work like um, Gaminda's, they use work like Lisa Lowe's The Intimacies of Four Continents. And basically, 
expose how BDS as a material analysis can expose across kind of geographies these connections between Britain, the United States, Palestine, Australia, these material connections of companies and their complicities in terms of as I said, ongoing primitive accumulation in Palestine, ongoing super exploitation of Palestinian labourers, either in Israel or on the illegal settlements. So there's a big thing about Palestinians being exploited in the illegal settlements for less than the Israeli minimum wage. Um, and then a lot of those agricultural products are then marked as made in Israel and then sold here, such as avocados and hummus and, thing, and olives and things like that. So racial capitalism really is that needed intervention for us to understand um, not only historically, but our present moment and also to be able to develop and generate new forms of praxis and resistance against the system, right? Because the point of of it is that you can't understand it just as capitalism because then your interventions and your forms of resistance are going to maybe understand it through merely the lens of class, just class formation, rather than the lens of recognising what well, needs to be anti-racist and class as well, right? I'm always going back to Stuart Hall's quote that race is the modality through which class is lived, right? And that is perfect to understand our present moment and how we develop generative interventions against it. Kieran, you read a lot of books, bro. Yeah. <laughs> you read a lot of books, man. I feel bad. No, I know. I'm sat here like, I, think I, I need to read. I'm looking at my, bo- I'm looking at my books, but my bag, I'm thinking, shit. I need, need to read more. <laughs> I need to read more. <laughs> I actually think it's like, so I, I was diagnosed with uh, autism when I was very, very young. And they were basically said to my mum that, that I wouldn't be able to go to mainstream school or anything. And yeah, now I'm forced through doing a PhD. And there were things that were very, very like tough process, but it was kind of a community and friends and kind of relationships that I had, which were generative and allowed me to do this stuff. But I think it is, there's somewhat of an element of my interest as well. Like when I was younger, I used to be obsessed with things like Lord of the Rings or like video games, and I would know all the lore and everything. And I've managed to take that and put it into academic interests where I can just kind of soak. I knew you were one of us, man. Yeah, yeah. No, man. I knew it. I can smell it, man. I can smell it on you, this man. This is a neurodiverse <laughs> space. Massively. Like, I could, I could tell he was one of yeah, us as well. I, I, like, I can smell it. I was like, he's one of us. Man. Yeah, my spiny senses <laughs> are tingling. No, we love that. And, like, I think one thing, just to just say one thing about neurodiversity, I think that the neurotypicals are a bit shook by us because actually like our time is now like thinking about how knowledge is both produced and democratized has been very constrained and actually there are loads of neurodiverse individuals obviously have been around for a long time but there are loads of us that have been on the margins that are sort of like saying actually like we can use we can apply and communicate knowledge and resources in ways that are different and that goes beyond your sort of yeah. straight line or neurotypical line of doing things. But I think, again, it's it kind of it's kind of reflected in class. So, so I think those who were neurodiverse in a certain class, people like Beethoven, all that, they they were able to articulate. Yeah, that's how it. They were, so right? it's those of us that are from yeah. Sort so of those like were margins, but yeah. with, the, with the growth of technology, like with social media and po- our podcasts and stuff like this, yeah, you, you can express yourself and you can communicate in ways which you couldn't do before, right? And that's why we're finding this this archaic process that we're involved with. Right with a PhD, yeah, PhD yeah. is not neurodiverse no, friendly. No, 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 like no, no. it's not tough, in... man. Having a new way to look at old problems, and I think that the scholarship you're talking about reflects that, right? Mm. To look at these problems in a different way, and to to ground an analysis of capitalism, which for so long has been grounded purely in that kind of one-dimensional way, yeah. Eurocentric, class, right? yeah, and the Eurocentric, way. and it's 
since like Stuart Hall and Paul Gilroy and all these like mm. looking at it in a different mm. grounded it through race and class at the same time mm-hmm. and people look at the agenda as well changing that thing and changing the dynamic of how we look at things mm-hmm. it's it's a very interesting time and it's and it's why I have tried to push a book like Black Marxism for so long because his ability to kind of expose that because even when he's talking about racial capitalism right he only really spends although it kind of is the framework for the whole wider book he obviously spends only one chapter on it at the beginning but it's also those kind of new ways of seeing things that like those reinterpreting and kind of illuminating really of the past in new and different ways so this is on his chapter about um, W. B. Du Bois and he says that um, it was Du Bois's book Black Reconstruction that was um, the first ledger in black radical historiography because Du Bois not only ha- was not only reinterpreting events which had already been interpreted, he was kind of unearthing this archaeology of black resistance uh, like through the Civil War that was just denied and obliterated. And that was part of that project of black Marxism as well, right? So he, he goes through in his chapter six, is probably the most famous chapter in the book, talking about um, the Palmares, Maroonage, the Haitian Revolution, all of these things in history which he describes as, you know, not just being misinterpreted but utterly denied because they had to be. Those histories had to, of resistance had to be denied but also the processes of how capital accumulation has functioned as and through racial capitalism too. I've got speechless, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it is, no, it's not speechless. It's, I agree with you. Yeah, like, yeah. you just agree? I, and you're I agree, like, so. I could just sit and listen to him yeah. all day. Just to roll back, you, you said a bit about yourself but one of the things we do like to do on the show which um, some academics don't like but we do make them do it is talk a bit about how you came to be working on studying Mm. organizing around these matters i know you're from ken (laughs) so i was born in ashford yeah so listeners will know that obviously my working well my white family are all from the medway town so whenever i hear about another fellow (laughs) person that's from ken i'm always really surprised because um particularly that to be sort of politically aligned with someone that's also from Kent because my family are all from or that part of my life is all from the sort of Medway towns Isla Sheppey um Gillingham Chatham and they are quite difficult places to both be a lefty but also to be a person of colour, to be someone that cares about a person of colour. I know they're not all, I know areas are not all like that, but this is just my lived experience of it. And so whenever I meet, I think we also had David Waring on the show, who's also from um, this part of Kent. But yeah, I'm always really interested in how you came to sort of like this kind of politics in and around mm-hmm. a lot of kind of racism, like mega conservative, like UKIP like yeah. area. So yeah. It would just be good to tell our listeners a bit about how you came into... So as I usually describe it, unfortunately, I don't have like a big story. Like some people will say, oh, it was the 2014 Gaza war. That was usually something that brought a lot of people in, where over um, 2,500 Palestinians were killed in the course of like 50 days, 19,000 homes destroyed. But for me, it was more so a slow accumulation of events and experiences and meeting people. Um, but I also would be remiss to not mention my mum, and I think that really has been a massive process um, in my development. Because although my mum has never been political, although now she, back in 2019, she joined a Ladies for Corbyn, I think, a Facebook group, <laughs> and would argue with people. But it's really been, and she's never been political, but is a bit now, but it, it's really been her kind of care and generative process and has really been probably, especially now in terms of like, 
looking at the politics of love with bell hooks, looking at like abolitionist politics. I mean, she really is an idol for me of one of the selfless people ever. So, and, and when we were poor, I mean, she was a single mum with me for like, I mean, my sister for quite a long time and she's always cared for the me and my younger siblings. And that's that kind of um, process of care and reciprocal love as I think really did impact me on a really subconscious level, which I don't think I would have developed the politics that I did now um, and through university because I really only started to get political when I got into university and I didn't realise until kind of last few years and reflexively looking back that I think that was a massively important process to my development and finding feminist politics and then finding anti-racist and abolitionist politics. But really it's less kind of interesting as I say, it was an accumulation of events like at university, joining left-wing societies, a lot of comrades were kind of pro-Palestine and then I think again Palestine is one of those things which resonates with so many people. What does Angela Davis call it? Uh, Yeah, Palestine is the litmus test. Palestine is the litmus test. Um, Davis, obviously. Oh yeah, well she has an amazing book called Freedom is a Constant Struggle and she's always drawing upon the Palestinian cause. I mean it's something which right back in 1979, Edward Said's famous book The Question of Palestine was one of my favourite quotes from him. But he says um, that Palestine is, is known as a rallying cry um, for peoples around the world, anti-imperialist, anti-racist, national independence movements. And he has a line where he says, um, the idea of resistance gets content and muscle from Palestine. In a better way, the microphysics of oppression can be understood in new and dynamic ways from looking at Palestine and the Palestinian struggle. And so I think that's also why it's brought me to that. And then because of its more global dimensions, and this is always what I try to say to people, is that, and even Palestinians themselves are saying this, right? I mean, there's a very long history of understanding these forms of resistance. Um, The PLO organised with the Black Panther Party. You had people like George Habash, um, people from the... PFLP, which is the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, writing op-eds in the Black Panther newspaper. Um, in fact, it was really Palestinian cause, which is where the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee uh, split with the main black freedom movement, I think in 19- 1964, and that was over Palestine and their support for it. And the Black Panthers were always supportive of Palestine. You people pictures of Hugh P. Newton in Lebanon training with the PLO. But you also have um, people like Nick Estes, who's a um, indigenous writer in the United States and he's got a great book called Our History is the Future and he talks about how there was massive links between the American Indian movement and mm-hmm. Red Power movements in Palestine as well yeah. and so it's always had these more global dimensions and connections and so I think that's part of the reason as well why I ended up getting into Palestine because I don't see Palestine as a project of something that's just over there I see it as part of my socialist ethic I see it as part of my class politic I see it as part of my anti-racist project because the liberation of Palestine will have so much more global and dynamic effects for liberational movements around the world um, that I think it speaks to me and many others in such kind of profound ways to do that. And that's kind of what a lot of my research and with activists and a part of campus and Palestine action is why they're doing the actions that they are. It's because they see it as part of this broader network of liberational kind of alternatives and praxis. So should liberation of Palestine be framed in the same way as BLM? The Me Too movement should it be should be framed in that way. Yeah, completely. I think it, it needs to be understood as a cause of liberation, um, as a cause of anti-racism, as a cause of decolonization. There's a lot of these talks of decolonization now, as I said before, but not only in a kind of ideological sense and an educational sense, but also in a material sense. So there's the struggles that we see, um, such as the Idle No More movement, Standing Rock and things. And you go to Standing Rock and there were Palestinians there. Um, Angela Davis specifically talks about how and things like Ferguson 
when the affairs with Ferguson, like revolts and rebellions were happening, um, the police department had tr- been trained by or gone to be trained in Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of police departments in the United States are trained in Israel or trained by kind of Israelis, which do a lot of counterinsurgency tactics and police kind of and protesting kind of counterinsurgency tactics. But it was um, Palestinians that were sending advice to, she says this in Freedom is a Constant Struggle, there was Palestinians that were tweeting over advice to the protesters in Ferguson of how to deal with the tear gas because the tear gas was produced by the same company that was being used in the West Bank against them. So this is another way which BDS, you can see through these transnational geographies of the same companies mm. and the same counterinsurgency tactics being used to oppress, but also those forms of resistance across geographies from Ferguson to Palestine or Standing Rock to Palestine are also modes in which we can develop, I think, more transnational forms of resistance as well and their, and their generative and connected nature. In hearing you say that, it kind of ties back to a spotlight that we had on the show Oh, uh, in Lebanon, Lebanon. Carmen yeah, and Carmen. Shri, uh, Shri Leroy. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and so something that's kind of resonated with me, like the idea that this kind of this transnational resistance, the idea like we know the elites, what they do. So what we can learn from each other, our resistance in each country is not localised anymore. It's, it's, a, it's an international thing. So we can learn from each other. So it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. To yeah. See that. A book I brought up on the train is Stephen, Stephen Salaito, who's a Palestinian, but focuses on um, Native American kind of scholarship and like praxis. Um, his book's called Inter-Slash-Nationalism. Inter and it's about the ways in which um, the kind of indigenous struggles throughout the Americas and also Palestine have to be connected through a recognition of um, shared struggle, shared attempt at indigeneity and national independence, right? And these have to be the way, and he talks about it now that he, he describes it as the age of transnational humanities is arrived. And is also, um, I think it's Rabab Abdel Hadi, who's another great activist, um, also says about how these things are also dependent, obviously, on these pasts, but they're regenerative in our current moment as well, in new ways. So there are these links between the American movement and the Indian, uh, the American Indian movement and the PLO, um, between the Black Panthers and Palestine. Palestine. I mean, you have people obviously like Malcolm X and things supporting the Palestinian cause. Um, but they're now generative in new ways through these new connections because of things like Black Lives Matter, because of things like Standing Rock, because of the um, land sovereignty struggles with the Wet'suwet'en protests in Canada, that now because of the nature of social media, it's so much more exposed that it's so easy to not only see these things but share those things that you're talking about, about strategies, about theories, about praxis. And so you can take black radical theory from the United States and the way it understands not only oppression but resistance and then apply that to Palestine and vice versa, right? We need to be having these exchanges of knowledge and praxis. In the 60s, the left was leading... We led the way in the kind of counterculture, right? Oh, he's going to bring the far right. No, 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 listen, 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 Let me land, let me land. Let me work it in there, man. Let me work it in. Get your vouchers ready, fam. Man's on fire these days with these things, right? Go on. So, but the right learnt from the left and they learnt about the counterinsurgency and how to do that. So, but the right have been spending time doing this, building those networks, building a sort of, and working out that they were linked. So what happened, what's happened in Australia was... There were similarities in America. Linked England, in their height. Yeah. Linked, but no, but it's the idea, I'll ask it to you on the, um, the voice note, they, they were, from our point of view, poison solidarities, right? That yeah. they worked out. But that what you're talking about is the same strategy that, that they did. And look how successful they have been. And, yeah. this, and this is the, this is what we need to do to link up these strategies across the board, man. So just to be clear, so your science, so you're reminding the listeners, T, that 
the left in the sort of sixties were very, very organised and leading the way and leading the way and, and shifting. And they had shifting. that pan Africanism and were looking abroad, looking yeah. wider. And then they and then the the right, and the right were doing bad, and, and they were like, "Let's what are they doing? Let's follow them." Correct. And, they, and, and then, then they jumped to social media. They've done all the things that Kieran just spoke about, and they've done it. And look how successful they've been. Yeah. And I'm trying to say, we as the left to re-energize the left to be effective. That that's what we need to do. And I think is BDS is might be the material way, the practical way of achieving this. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a great intervention. And it also links in with Black Marks. Oh, listen, wait, 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 wait. Before you go on, Kieran, like man, man got a bit, man got a bit stressed there. Man. <laughs> got a bit hot still. Well, let me let me take my give me drink some coke. Let me drink some coke. One second. <laughs> T. So to be fair, T, we obviously are a politics about yeah. Global, global and local <laughs> race and class, and the far right are an important part of that. So, um, well, well, I, do actually, I do actually have a good comrade who's starting a PhD on. What's his name? Plug him. Uh, well, his name's uh, Kean. Which, Kian. if he does hear this, he will absolutely be like laughing his head. <laughs> yeah, off. big but, up Kean. But um, <laughs> but he's um, so he's. You can find him on Twitter as well. I, I've added him actually today. Um, I usually just at him and just take stuff. In fact, because he's basically studying British fascism. But he wants to do his PhD on looking at British fascism through the lens of the black radical tradition of people like Du Bois, of George Padmore. T- of... Th- that's like Tiso's thing. Well, he, well, he's and so we've kind of read um, black Marxism together and things, and um, and he's basically um, been yeah trying to expose how um, fascism. There was actually an article I think recently that was talking about how fas- the new f- waves of fascism in the far right were essentially predicted and engaged with by the black radical tradition like before that happened. There's an amazing quote from um, W.B. Du Bois where he essentially... Well, no, actually, it's, it's a quote from Robinson, but he's um, paraphrasing Du Bois where he says, um, the West is pathological and fascism was um, a part of its nature. And that the boys didn't see fascism as essentially this kind of um, aberration of kind of liberal modernity, but fundamentally a logical conclusion of centuries of terror, of racialism, of violence, of slavery. Um, and I think that's another part of these new forms of analysis and talking about books like Black Marxism and kind of engagement with radical Palestinian kind of um, theory and strategies such as BDS um, is a way that I think is also part of our current struggles against the far right and things too, right? Because not only in terms of looking at those material um, strategies through BDS, but looking at things through the lens of racial capitalism and the black radical tradition, you can see how um, fascism, where it emerges out of, you know, it emerges out of this kind of civilization, out of its colonial processes. And so really, if we're going to engage that forcefully, there needs to be a recognition of those histories. If, if you view that fascism as this kind of aberration at the moment, right, you kind of have this thing of, oh, well, Trump gets in and now he's out and kind of fascism's over. And it's kind of like, no, these are continuing processes. Look at the nature of the neoliberal state, you know, look at its um, proliferation of bordering technologies, of um, drone warfare. I mean, this links again back to Palestine, right, where... Palestine is understood heavily as essentially a laboratory of global technologies of violence and strategies of violence, which are then exported globally. Um, there's a great Israeli scholar called Eil Wiseman who basically talks about how the occupied territories are the largest kind of um, laboratories for testing these weapons and technologies. So as I said with Elbit Systems, they market their weapons as battle-tested on Palestinians. Um, but their drones are used by the EU border fr- agency Frontex. 
Um, their drones are being trialed. Their the, their drones are being trialed out by the Coast Guard and Maritime Agency in the UK. They're being contracted out by British police to replace helicopters. It was also Elbit Systems Technology, which are in the US Mexico border wall, used by Trump. They used the apartheid wall in Palestine to base its technology on the border walls. So you can see how Palestine is actually at the center of these global struggles as well against fascism and the far right because they're using those forms of technologies, those forms of violence, but also the forms of racial nationalism that we're seeing from the types of Netanyahu who, who is linked with Trump, who is linked with Modi in India. Yeah, yeah. You know, that this is a central site of struggle for opposing these um, forms of far-right fascism. And I think things like Palestine radicalism, things like what I would say like indigenous and native radicalism, things like black radicalism, are the interventions that are fundamental in the left's opposition to it. Listen, listen, I'm going to get rid of vouchers. You've been promoted to the newer diverse SS X-Men. Yeah. <laughs> You're fully, you're fully, you're fully involved. Neurodiverse survivor society. X-Men. X-Men. You're fully involved. You you're are fully VIP. Involved. Yeah, VIP, VIP status. VIP status, man. <laughs> we just made up our whole category for the for our alumni sick, for Kieran. Sick, yeah. That's a full Honestly, that but like he just backed he backed your full like from you've been T's been T's been trying as we. When we talk about the left on the show, often T will bring up the far right in thinking about these things. Yeah. But Kieran has just done a full thing for you, T. Well, and it's, like, it, back, like and back it, in it. Must be, give me the books. Yeah, you give, give me the books. Give me the, give book. me the books, man, the reference he's list. Also, he's also fully backed it. It's just Kieran. We don't often have hopeful conversations on the show. No, we do. We do. We do. We talk about solidarities. We talk about hope. And we talk about love. I love that you mentioned love, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really important to us. And that is um, a shout out to um, my friend Sham, who she's been pushing bell hooks and talking about the politics yeah. of love and palafria. Yeah. Yeah. Big up Sham. Like love is, yeah. I, I think, um, essential, as bell hook says, in a world of lovelessness. We have to reclaim mm-hmm. it and find it and bring it. So I think, yeah, everything you've said is just so poignant. And there's two things I want to say. Number one, it was a show we had recently where we spoke about how the sort of mainstream media and even the far right are sort of getting a bit shook because we are using their epistemologies or their facts to tell them about themselves. And they're actually just showing themselves now as in like, we're, we're telling you this is what needs to happen. And we've used your methods Mm -hmm. of knowledge production, reading, listening, like we've used your people and you're still saying not freedom. So that's, that's one thing I'm thinking. And the second thing I'm thinking about is where is the hope with this type of thing? Is there hope? Can there be hope? In We're in a global pandemic. We are seeing like more, more, more growth of, yeah, this kind of fa- like it's, it does feel like fascism across the world. Um, growth of the far right. Like where is the hope? Where are the solidarities? So, yes, there's two things. Thinking about epistemologies and us using their epistemologies and them saying, no, 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 no not you. One thing I'm thinking about as well is. We don't need to get into it too much because we've we've got the receipts. We spoke about this so much on the show. But like the Guardian censoring Judith Butler this week, removing Judith Butler saying that trans exclusionary radical feminists are highly linked to the far right. We've been saying that in this show since 2016. And obviously there's been amazing scholars that have been talking about that stuff all the time. But like the mainstream or the li- the liberals and the left, like... I just feel like their their racism, their homophobia, all that stuff is just showing and mm-hmm. it really makes it hard to like 
who are our people type yeah. thing. So yeah, thinking about epistemology and then thinking about yeah, solidarities and hope, Kieran. I think um I think as you say, now in kind of our present moment and all of these kind of contradictions that are coming out really does expose people that will may identify as left wing as socialist but really what they want is a kind of welfare state for white citizens and things like that but, yeah um i actually i did put up a tweet about um the uh kind of trans exclusionary radical feminist kind of relationship to fascism actually a few weeks ago mm-hmm. where i essentially pointed out that unlike judith butler and other people have done is that it's recognizing that what's happening is that with the emergence of fascism and you have the particular constructions of the human right i'm thinking of fanon i'm thinking of Cezanne, i'm thinking of sylvia winter particular constructions of the human that are predicated about on what sylvia winter calls the bourgeois ethno class of man you know rational white bourgeois has capital homo economicus she calls it um and the forms of racialization that are coming out, particularly against um, Arab people and Muslims, um, against black people, especially in the United States and things, with the emergence of fascism is, con- is is constructing these new forms of human and saying, well, we are the kind of West, we're going to throw up the borders like against the kind of invaders, the outsiders, the others. But you, And so you, you can so clearly then see the links between these other groups of people who are di- identifying a particular construction of womanhood and then... And then basically forcing a particular construction of womanhood upon so many people and then also then excluding others, right? So the construction of the human that both fascists are creating and TERFs is a is a very exclusionary one. Mm. And it's an exclusionary one which something like race and gender and class has always been dependent upon, right? That the fact that like working class women have not always been included in the category of womanhood or black women or migrant women, right? Um and the in the construction thinking about the construction of the nation which fascism kind of appeals to this kind of mythology of the nation is so dependent upon exclusions of who is included within that category right so i think there are clear lines between who is being included in the construction of humanness um and who is not and i I think sorry kieran just to cut you because i love that analysis so much because it's really helping me to articulate my issue with the left because the left are doing that and engaging in that massively and it's so disappointing and just so like alarming like almost on a daily basis like more alarming possibly than the right but then again we'll have people on this show that will tell us the left have always been fucking waste men like they've always done this shit like as in as do you know what i mean as in like (laughs) they've always done this so actually like i need to check myself roll back to history and actually this is always what's happened and like it, think yeah. about like david rodiger like ron Ware, exactly. like speaking speaking about these things exactly. like and this goes back to um what we we're saying earlier about history and that it's a need to have these new radical interpretations of the past and also essentially where where's the political left come from and what what have hit its like objectives been for so long right which has usually been the benefiting of particularly white workers at the expense of women mm. of people of color of migrants and people throughout the global south and the world right and so i think now is the time that where we're building these alliances can no longer depend purely upon oh i'm left wing or i'm marxist or i'm a socialist and so we're just going to identify you as an our on our side right because your conception of socialism is going to be completely different from ours, which is embedded in feminist abolitionism, embedded in black radicalism, embedded in kind of decolonial politics, right? Um, and a recognition of um, what 
Césaire called a humanism made to measure the measure of the world, right? Mm. Um, and on the notion of hope, I mean, this is something I'm always trying to do in my work. I mean, part of my focus is how a lot of academic work, particularly in Palestine, is identifying the structures of oppression, um, and which needs to be done. There needs to be interventions and in how these structures of oppression work. But there seems to be a lot less um, scholarship and a kind of academic work and knowledge generation on this thing, at least in academia, um, on the notions of resistance and the powers of strategies and forms of practice that we can develop resistance against it. So there'll be X, Y, Z um, articles on this is racial capitalism in Palestine, this is settler colonialism in Palestine. There's less and less of how do we articulate resistance to it. And I think it's kind of these generative conversations that is part of how we can develop these forms of resistance. Um, and there's, and I think going back again to Cedric Robinson and people who know me will know it's a massive cliche that I always go back to Robinson. But he has some absolutely beautiful quotes on these things. I mean, there's one where I think it is near the end of his chapter six where he's talking about maroonage and everything else, um, where he says, I'm going to paraphrase because he writes a lot more beautifully than I can speak, um, that the notion of Gramsci's uh, notion of hegemony, um, which kind of is based in the in the metropole, in the periphery was only ever like a passing thing. And where he says how... Um, what was it? Essentially, that primit where primitive accumulation, um, accumulated resources and exploitation, it also um, harvested forms of resistance. And that's the way that we need to think about these things, is that for all of the forms of accumulation and violence and exploitation that these forms of oppression produce, they also generate and accumulate forms of resistance against it. We are kind of bound by, uh, in our discussion, we are kind of limited by the kind of ages of the enlightenment right so mm, whenever yeah. we're talking we're still stuck in those kind of dynamics socialism the idea of the, 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 there's a dialectic there so there's oppression and there's resistance and we know in reality it's more complex than that but we also we also have a tendency to kind of lurch from essentialism to trans what i seeking to go beyond beyond it when really the kind of system that if you look at it from a historical point of view it's all interconnected and we, we're talking about interconnectivity that's the word and hybridity of, of this is what we're talking about in the in practical terms but in theoretical terms we lurch from badges mm. and this is the problem when really it's trying to understand the nuance of it all and tease things out all the time tease and in teasing you can generate practical solutions but we talk all the time in in concepts, and I was looking at Nietzsche in the, between good and evil. He said, concepts are good ways of looking at the world, right? They're great ways of looking at it, but they're a lie. They're ways of academics talking yeah. to each other. We simplify things because it's easier for us to understand. But really, but the problem is we become too invested in that concept and that becomes a problem. And this is what we, this is where we are right now. We are too invested in concepts and not talking about realities of people. Mm. And when we understand the realities and we talk about realities, this is how we generate real meaningful change. And that's what people are scared of when we talk in those kind of terms. But when academics talk in those concepts, it's fucking dead, bro. Yeah. This this goes back to what to uh, Chantel was saying. Read a few saying. books too, you know. Read a few books. It goes back to what Chantel was saying about like the problems of the left, right? Is that so many of the kind of concepts and the kind of conceptual discourses that are used to analyse these things are dependent fundamentally on broken frameworks or Eurocentric frameworks that can't understand these things. So what you're saying about um, it will be either like socialism or capitalism, but it's kind of like, well, there are different life worlds. There are different forms of praxis and resistance that exist outside merely the kind of dialectic between 
class warfare and the, you know kind of the proletariat and the bourgeoisie or kind of like class warfare against the state or something like that and this is why i think something like the work of black radicalism is so important because again to talk about black marxism I, what it's one of its most profound things is that although it talks people think of it as a book that's about an engagement with Marxism. Really, its subtitle is The Making of the Black Radical Tradition. That is really the most important part of it. And that's the part which people always miss. And there's a line from Robinson, which is probably my favourite quote of his, where he says, um, the configuration, the total configuration of human experience requires other forms. And it's to essentially say that there are different modes of existence, there are different modes and theories and practices, there are different concepts that need to be grounded in these realities. Something that he says about Marxism or European kind of Enlightenment philosophy or even anarchism and things, he says that they are essentially um, one tied to the notion that, that despite their histories and despite their particularities emerging out of Europe, that they are universal. Mm-hmm but also that they have an inorganic relationship to the masses of people that they're describing. So in his chapter drawing from Richard Wright, he basically says how um, Richard Wright saw, ended up coming to, because Richard Wright was a communist, but ended up leaving the Communist Party and seeing it as an ideology, not um, an ideology for the working classes rather than an ideology of the working classes that had organically actually been produced from them. Where he says that the black radical tradition and the forms of maroonage, that was an organic development of people negating their material conditions of slavery and colonialism. And so in our kind of current interventions in the democratization of knowledge that we need to be grabbing from all these different areas, from abolitionist feminism, from Palestine radicalism, from black radicalism, and the ways in which they're grounded in actual different configurations of human experience, not only oppression, but also of resistance. So we're not constantly kind of bound to this cycle that you're talking about of these abstracted concepts that are actually um, extracted from um, or not extracted from, but uh, are divided from the actual lived realities of oppression, but also resistance. You've got the infinity gauntlet. Yeah. That's what man's got, the infinity gauntlet here. Yes, <laughs> infinity gauntlet of knowledge. Just to say as well, like, I think the other thing that what both of you guys are saying um, that kind of um, backs up my now lifelong ambition to drag the left, particularly left-wing media, um, is, um, <laughs> is the to follow the mainstream or to follow the right and just give an alternative perspective that is of a left, quote-unquote, left-wing perspective is trash. And I take that that kind of viewpoint, or the person that helped me realise that kind of viewpoint is Dan Rennick, comes on the show, um, he's come on the show a few times. Release the like, Dan. Release the Dan. Release the Dan. Release the Dan. Release the Dan. We love you, Dan. Um for our for our media outlets or media outlets that say they represent our quote unquote progressive views to just follow the way the normative construction of the human experience is presented to the mainstream is just it's complete bullshit and it is not going to get us freedom it's not going to get us free it's not going to get us the types of politics that we need to create a, a global global liberation like it's not going to yeah. do that it, all it's going to do is make a couple of people that are from a yeah left-wing persuasion rich well yeah completely and, and they, we've got so many of these problems of you know there are a lot of particular faces of people from particular groups that dominate left-wing media or dominate particular parties um who are always 
not only within the same communities, but drawing from the same kind of theories and practice, as we're saying. And this is why, again, I think something like Palestine is so important for our broader liberational horizons, that we need to be looking at these different sites of resistance, these different kind of, these different traditions outside these Eurocentric frameworks that are totally dominant on the left, but just don't get engaged with in a serious manner. So there may be discussion of Palestine, but it is very much in a kind of like, this is a conflict and we go, this is a foreign policy issue rather than an issue of something like Black Lives Matter or of an issue of liberation, an issue of the colonisation of, of exposing those different configurations of human life and experience. But what I see, what, to do that, and like we spoke about earlier, Kieran, it's, and I think it's a subject we spoke about with, uh, who talks about care all the time? Oh, Bev, Bev Skeggs. Bev, that's it, Bev yeah. Skeggs. Big up Bev Skeggs, go to, on. You have to care, right? So... In caring, you have to understand to understand Palestine. You have to understand the conflict, the history, and you have to care to get beyond what you see in the mainstream. And care is not something that's kind of it's not something that's evident in mainstream society. So to look at all these different the myriad of conflicts that go around the world, the myriad of struggles, you have to care. Mm. And some people don't want to. It's, some some people don't want to. Some people that's too much intellectual work, right? Like to you've. It, from the like, like I said, from talking to you just now, Kieran, you you've read a lot of books because that's because you're passionate and you like doing that, right? But some and people you, and he cares and he cares, right? Yeah. But some people like they're like that. Oh, boy. But, but this is the amazing thing about Palestine, right? And this mm-hmm. is again why it speaks to me and I think so many other people is that it is seen as a rallying cry. That it's seen because of this is what um, Yara Hawari, who uh, works at the Palestinian Policy Network, Al Shabaka, she calls it. Um, a microcosm of global forms of oppression. And I think that is actually something which is significant to a lot of people. And even those that aren't, um, that, that, that don't necessarily know these histories, right, is what is something which Palestine Action has been really, really good at, is actually engaging communities. Mm-hmm. I mean, one example was that during the recent bombing in Gaza, where over 200 people were killed, again, homes destroyed, um, was a bunch of activists got on, got on top of the Elbit Systems factory in Leicester, um, threw paint down it, smashed things up. Um, and when they the police came, and, and they were up there for six days, um, at least the last two activists, um, basically stopping that supply chain from Britain to Palestine to then be used on the people of Gaza, a population which is mostly children and refugees, a site in which the UN um, said that by last year would be unlivable. And that they're still resisting, and that they're still. And I think when we're talking about hope and resistance, I think Palestine and the Palestinian people are a perfect example of that ongoing resilience of hope. But to go back to Leicester, when um, the police tried to take them, the local community were coming out, right? And they were coming out in their Big hundreds. Up Leicester, Leicester, and Leicester, are real ones. Yeah, about yeah, by yeah. the end, about five hundred people came out and barricaded the police inside the grounds of the factory. Right, it took them hours to get the people out. And when they got to the police station, there were people in all their BMWs or the nice cars. There was a there was a car. There was fifty cars that followed them all the way to the police station and waited until the people were left out. Right, and we're now seeing in places like Manchester as well where a group called Manchester Palestine Action have been protesting the Elbit for anti-site where they build drones and all the technologies for them. Um, And they've been protesting outside it basically every single week. And they're galvanising the local community um, every single week to come out, right? I mean, even with like the massive solidarity protest that we saw, I think it was the biggest Palestine protest that happened in this country, something like 150,000 people, things, right? That I think it is one of those things that, yes, um, there needs to be an the kind of uh, democratization of knowledge, these generative forms that we can actually spread knowledge and produce what Walter Rodney would call groundings with people. Um, But I think it is also one of those things that people 
really do care when you tell them. When you tell them you have an arms factory down your road that markets as weapons as battle-tested on people, on children and refugees, and then sells those weapons to then bomb other people around the world. There's a very simplistic material relationship there that I actually think does have a lot of profound human resonance that I think speaks beyond... Um, there's something, again, uh, drawing from Cedric Robinson, and he has a quote at the end of his um, Anthropology of Marxism where he essentially says that... Um, the way that oppression inspires resistance in ways that we may never truly understand, I think there's something so resonant there. And I think it's something that we, we can connect to so many forms of other struggle, right? That with the brutal police murder of George Floyd and the amount of protests and rebellions that we saw globally around the world and the resonance that that has, I think that's something that can all that can provide us all with the strength and the hope and the resilience to carry on fighting is that it is clear despite all of our myriad conflicting contradictions and unequal relationships that there is something there that speaks to people on a very deeper and profound level that says that is wrong and we need to stand against it listen sign me up bro <laughs> sign, sign me up, bro. up. <laughs> kieran I, like, I think multiple mic drops. I think you've got about four in there. He's fully, he's fully in the X-Men, man. Fully, 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 fully. Kieran, thank you so much yeah, for coming yeah. on the show. It has been it's incredible. Great, like That is one of my favourite episodes. Sick, yeah. Like I said, listen, man, you got into the X-Men. You didn't have to try it out. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, Kieran. And listeners, we will see you again next week. See you later. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. You can now continue the conversation with us on Twitter and Instagram. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 